welcome again to Fast Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Pamela Lopez, and we're here with director James Foley, um, who has made some incredible movies over a very long career. Um, Mr. Foley, James, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you first started, where you came from, and how you came to the directing profession? Um, yeah, I was going to be a, uh, <clears throat> a shrink when I finished undergraduate. And um, I, well, I was going to be a psychologist, and then I decided I wanted to be a shrink. And then to be a sh the difference is to be a shrink, you got to go to medical school. So I changed my mind mid-course, uh, applied to medical school, and then I had a semester off um, to fool around. And I went to an NYU, I was living in New York, and I went to an NYU crash course, like 12 weeks of film directing. And it was very, um, <clears throat> I don't want to say kamikaze for some reason, but <laughs> it was very immersive and um, they gave you a little camera at the time, which was a uh, wind-up camera, believe it or not, in black and white. 16? With, with yeah, 16, not even Super 16. And you had the morning to go out and shoot your film, and the film is supposed to be one minute long, but still have some kind of narrative or some kind of emotional effect. And um, it was all just first time people picking up a camera. It was more like a, not an academic thing so much as a technical course. Um, non-matriculated people to get a taste of NYU film school. And so you'd go out in the morning and you'd shoot something and then you'd spend the afternoon editing it and then you'd screen it at the end of the day. And usually, um, it's hard to remember now, but usually the person whose film didn't break in the projector was considered the best filmmaker of the day <laughs> because they spliced the film together with tape as it used to be done. And um, <clears throat> I went out and I didn't know what I was doing, but I went right to Washington Square Park, you know, across the street because I didn't want to waste any time traveling. And I just started shooting and I saw some kids in a sandbox and I just started filming them and I got down in the sandbox so I could be at the level of the kids. And um, while I was just shooting them, playing and stuff, and they were ignoring me, which was great. And then I was on one little girl and then these two masculine adult legs came into the frame and then these big hands came down and picked up the child and took it out of the frame. And um, I didn't think much of it except um, apparently he didn't want his kid being photographed and stuff like that. So I cut it together and again the main focus was trying to make the splices work but I tried to have some kind of, I had no idea about editing, but I tried to put the good shots in and throw the bad shots out. That was my direction. Um, and when it came to the shot of the little girl being picked up by the adult whose face we couldn't see, just his arms and his legs, the 
class of about 40 students in unison went, ooh. Like scary. It, it's like scary. Stole like the it's scary. Like he stole the child, and sexual intimations, and blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting in the room, and it was my film, and then, you know, 40 people in exact unison went, ooh. And I can't tell you how that experience was to me like. I don't mean to be crude, but it was like the first time having an orgasm. Like you didn't know that that was something your body did. <laughs> and um, you liked it. And of course, the first thing you want to do is do it again. So um, when that happened, I, um, it, on that, at that moment, just chucked medical school, chucked being a shrink and said, I just want to do that. I just want to feel that moment again. And uh, I fell in love. And at the time, um, I was going to enroll in NYU film program, graduate program. But a lot of great movies were coming out of Hollywood at the time in the late 70s. You know, there was Hal Ashby, who was a um, big hero of mine. And great films were coming out. I mean, The Godfathers and Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and um, a great film. The Conversation. The Conversation and uh, Deer Hunter. I mean, things that really affected me, that the kind of films I wanted to make. And they were coming out of Hollywood. And when I was growing up in New York, I didn't necessarily differentiate between what was coming out of Hollywood and what was coming, what was foreign films. And at the time, foreign films had quite a presence, particularly in New York. And so a new Truffaut film or a Fellini film or something would be playing at a theater next to Rosemary's Baby, um, which was a great film too. So um, I decided that uh, USC was uh, the place to go for me because I, I liked Hollywood. I liked at the time what was coming out of it. And um, so I went to USC graduate school for three years, um, which were the best three years of my life up to that time. And it was really immersive. And since it was university and we were going to get an academic degree, there was a lot of, um, besides film production, the practical part of it, there was a lot of film history and film criticism and stuff like that, which I really appreciated. And um, this is not what would is it does it correlate to one of their programs now or is that has yeah. that all changed? No, it's still the same. Um, they still have a university based academic part of the uh, program. It's not they want to keep themselves from not being a technical school, but a, a university and um, cinema as one of the artistic disciplines. It's in the School of Performing Arts. So like my degree is a master's in fine arts and um, makes you feel good. Yeah. And um, uh, the one thing that's happened since I was there is that since the crop of filmmakers right before me, Zemeckis and um, uh, well, Steven Spielberg didn't go there, but the famous stories that he didn't get in, his mm -hmm. grades weren't good enough, which always amuses me. And um, and George Lucas, of course, being the major um, person. And I remember as 
my last year, um, filmmakers would often bring their films in rough cut down to the film school and get a bunch of cocky film students who would be criticizing it and it's always painful. I've done it and it's because they all know better and we <laughs> thought we knew better. And um, I didn't like Star Wars at all and I just came at her and said, uh. <laughs> but I'll never forget this one kid from Louisiana who went back to Louisiana and never made made it a career in film, said that movie's gonna make a lot of money. And I just said, are you out of your mind? You know, who's gonna see that? And that began my commercial instincts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, so now the school has just exploded with... Um, there are like 10 different tracks that you can do, right? There's yeah, there's the Peter producing, Stark. yeah, Peter Stark producing thing and um, production and writing and um, a whole bunch of things. And they have just state-of-the-art digital um, stuff going on from, um, it's Americans in particular donated a ton of money, so they really, and the corporations like Avid and Kodak and the digital filmmakers, Sony and stuff like that, um, are very much interested in being involved in the school and giving money. So they're like they're overflowing with wealth, except they still have fundraisers and <laughs> because they say one of the biggest problems is that people donate several million to build the building and have their name on it, but nobody wants to donate for the upkeep of the building. Like who's gonna hire the guy who mops the floors at night? Nobody wants to pay for that. So, and since the Mm, reputation of the school is that they're just rolling in dough. It's very hard to raise money. So, um, what's the relationship with Annenberg? Annenberg, that's a whole separate school. That's School of Communications, I think it's called. Oh, okay. And um, it's mainly, um, although the school of it's you it used to be USC Cinema, now it's called the USC Visual Arts, I think because um, they wanted, at first there was no TV, it was just cinema. And then TV came along, so it was cinema TV, and all the cinema students were just like, you know, appalled. And, um, <laughs> but now it's this, I think it's called the School of Visual Arts. Uh, did you make, what films did you make while you were at, at USC? Did you make uh, short films? Yeah. Or? They have a very specific program where in your first year you make short films of three to five minutes on Super 8 color with no sound. And um, you have editing classes, you have um, screenwriting classes, camera classes, which was the most boring to me of how to take apart a camera. I just my eyes glazed over. I said, I don't want to know how to take apart a camera. Um, the one thing they didn't have was uh, directing actors. That was not, I think it is now, but it was not on the, on the curriculum. But um, it really was inspiring. And so the first year you make Super 8, no sound. Second year you make 16 millimeter um, with black and white with um, sound and the third year you make, and that's like um, 10 minutes long, and the third year, if you make it that far, 
is a tremendous dropout rate uh, because they're very strict. Again, trying to keep it a university and you have to maintain a certain grading point average and stuff like that. And uh, so by the third film, it was a 20-minute color, sync sound narrative story. Oh, you can make a documentary or do whatever you want, experimental thing. But the key thing about it is that it was set up to mimic a studio process. So you, if you wanted to direct, you had to A, get a script, either write it yourself, which most people did, or get somebody who was in the writing program to give you their script. And then you had to go around convincing people to be your sound man, your cameraman, your editor, and stuff like that. And then you'd have to go before a board of faculty and um, students. And um, there were, of, at the time, of course, something like six at that level, six directing slots opened and there were a hundred students. And so everybody wanted to direct. And um, so it was very competitive about who got picked to direct. And so the people who got rejected would be the people you'd go after to be your sound man and everything else. And uh, I was lucky I got to direct and um, my brother actually was in the undergraduate television um, department and he was uh, the sound man on my big graduating uh, thing. And that becomes your calling card, this 20-minute narrative film when you go and try to get a job and that's what you show. Um, yeah, I've been to a screening of them at the DGA where yeah, they show first like... first look, they call it. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't... Uh, one of the interesting things is that when I went, Lucas had just left and there was a lot of, up to that time, relationship between Hollywood and the um, university. And then they decided that it was getting to be too uh, chummy and that all the students began focusing on making big Hollywood movies and narrative films and making money and Hollywood was too close, this couple of freeway exits up and they decided that wasn't their mission as a university and all the students were, were focusing on one type of film so they cut off a lot of the relationship with Hollywood but um, one of my accomplishments, for me it was at least, is that me and a couple of friends of mine decided we wanted, we wanted to be involved in Hollywood. So we restarted this program where we would screen our films for agents and producers and things like that. And that began the rebirth of the connection with Hollywood, which is now totally, as you can tell, the DJ has their first look screenings. and. Uh, um, graduating from USC has a lot of benefits in getting your foot in the door um, because it's had so many successful directors before then. And uh, so that helped me a lot. How, and, how uh, so? So when you had your calling card film, did you know who you wanted to present it to? Uh, I was very lucky in that I... Um, met up with an agent, a kind of high-powered agent at CAA at a dinner party of 
people that I knew who um, were just starting out, except one of the guys was dating an actress, if you remember her name, Terry Garr. Mm -hmm. And um, Terry had this agent, and she invited her agent, and we were talking, and then the agent asked to see my film, and he liked it a lot, so he signed me up. So now I was represented by CAA, and I had this film to show, so I could go to meetings and screen the film. And it took me a whole nine months after graduation to get my first film, and I thought, you know, it's... You thought that was I'm, a long I'm, time. I'm, oh my God, <laughs> I thought I'm never gonna work, I'm, you know, this is crazy. And, um, but then I went and, um, there was this film, Reckless, and then they, you know, wanted to make it. It was this MGM studio film, but they wanted to make it relatively cheaply, and um, which they, at that time meant four million bucks, and um, for studio film, which was you know pennies, and um, there was nobody in it. You know, Daryl Hannah and Aidan Quinn were real nobodies, mm. and you cast them. Yes, and because so, um, I noticed your casting is fantastic in all of yeah, your films, you've got a really thanks. good sense of yeah. I love actors, and I love good actors <laughs> most of all. Because when you're directing, you know, you're just you can have you can be the most brilliant person on earth, have this vision for a film, but you are dependent on the actors bringing to life what your vision is and I don't know how to act and so I can't do it myself like Woody Allen or somebody and um, so I have great respect for actors and always have formed a kind of tight relationship with them because I've always for better or for worse involved myself emotionally in the story of the film and identify with one or more of the characters which is why most of my films have young men as the protagonists, although I'd like to uh, change that and um, have some women as the protagonist. And um, So when Daryl Hannah came in to yeah. read for you, had she done anything of note? Or? No, no. Wow. She was, I only knew her because I remember a woman named Rachel Ward, um, and I had a relationship with her, and um, she was sharing a house. She'd just come from England, and she was sharing a house with Daryl, who I don't even know where she met her, and so I, would, and I knew Daryl from going up to Rachel's house, and uh, I liked her a lot and thought she was right. The studio liked her, and um, so she got cast, and then I remember Brian Grazier and Ron Howard come into the editing room because they were looking for somebody to cast Splash. in Splash. Yeah. And so I was proud that they cast her off of the dailies of, of Reckless. That's cool. Daryl subsequently became uh, a little environmentally extreme and has devoted her life to living with the um, smallest carbon footprint she possibly can, and she's just obsessed by it and has really drifted into some netherworld. Hmm. I mean, uh, James Cameron has his way of being environmental environmentalist, <laughs> making billions of dollars, and Daryl had a different trajectory. Did um, you, were you, um, did, 
Did you talk to Daryl about Kennedy at all? I think her family, I, I don't know if I'm confusing her, but I no. think her family was very connected with them. No, um, she was connected with oh, John Jr. Right. Okay. It just has, but her uh, family was a very political, progressive family. Her family was a very wealthy family out of Chicago, I believe. I forget what they owned, but I just knew that they were very wealthy mm -hmm. and big shots in Chicago. Yeah, I remember when I was at Steppenwolf, they were um, big donors to the theater. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so... Um, How did that script get to you? Did you read a lot of scripts before you read Reckless and you yes. chose it and then came to... How, does that, how did that work, at least at that well, time? Well, what happens is that you have an agent now, so, and there's a new director, and so anything new in Hollywood, now I have a big-time agent. So they think, okay, the big-time agent doesn't need me for his career, so it must mean that I'm worth something because he's adding me to his roster. And um, so it's all illusion, but um, so I would get a lot of meetings and um, I developed this relationship with Hal Ashby and before I did Reckless, I actually wrote a script um, and Hal Ashby was at the height of his powers and stuff, and he was going to produce other people's, young people's scripts. And because I always thought I would write and direct everything that I did, but um, the first thing I wrote was considered dark as hell, and um, uh, that wasn't going anywhere. And then Hal's two movies that he was making at the same time were big flops and so then he lost his deal and blah 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 so then I had nothing to go on and I was constantly being sent horror films you know there weren't art films at the time because Hollywood was still make you know making dramatic artistic films so there weren't there was no Miramax or anything like that and um, I knew I didn't want to do a horror film and um, Reckless came along, and it wasn't the greatest script ever, although written by, not although, but interestingly enough, written by Chris Columbus, who mm -hmm. went on to mm -hmm. do those other films. So Gremlins it was a real, I think he hates the film, as far as I know, because I did a rewrite that made it much darker and much more sexual. And... Um, uh, I actually got rated X when they had wow. X at the time, and it was a big fight to cut out a certain scene, which I regret to this day. And but they didn't have DVDs and director's cuts, so. But when I make a really big hit, I'm gonna go back and fix a couple of things and get them to put it, it. yeah on Blu-ray and like the transfer of a close range is abysmal and um we couldn't um find the dvd actually we had to watch it on vhs but that's because we were at rocket video and they didn't uh, have the dvd apparently they didn't have the dvd at mm -mm. the close yeah. range mm -mm. we need to get and them then a DVD the sound um uh, on our vhs copy that the, the only one that they had the sound was very muffled oh oh that kills me <laughs> maybe you can give them a dvd uh yeah, uh, this is Rocket Video here. Yeah. Um, you guys live here? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, because even the DVD, I'm very... I didn't realize I still even had VHSs to rent or... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think but it rocket sometimes. Or a it lot of was um, a cheapo transfer. And um, Sean Penn and I have always talked about going back and getting them to retransfer it because it's had a very vibrant life in home video and stuff and on cable and stuff. And I hate to think that most people have seen it just in that kind of condition instead of the widescreen uh, film being projected. Mm -hmm. um, Did you discover a lot of those actors as well or were they um, already working? Well, Sean I met from casting uh, Reckless, which I didn't want him for, although he always contended that he didn't want it either, but he was... <laughs> Very Sean Penn. Yeah, like, very Sean Penn. <laughs> but he came to a meeting to meet about it, but then in subsequent years, the story changed. Um, but uh, we became uh, friends from that for whatever reason, and I remember he broke up with his girlfriend, Elizabeth McGovern, if you remember her. Mm -hmm. She was a big star at one moment, and then I don't know what happened. But So Sean had no place to live, and in typical Sean behavior, the house was very different, and I had a big old disgusting couch there, and he lived there for like six months before we started making uh, at close range. And um, so, and he was really the pivot to get that movie made because it was pretty uncommercial but he was just bursting on the scene he was on the cover of Rolling Stone he was being he was the next big thing and uh, he so it was really through him that the film got made and um, then we just went uh, first instinct was to go to Chris Walken, who we thought would be the perfect father, because he was just nuts then, and um, <laughs> only became one nuts. And um, we cast some really weird people, like Crispin Glover and um, Mary Stuart Masterson, who was great, and I thought there would be big things for her, and I don't know. I mean, you can sit around some night and talk about whatever happened to and drive you nuts because you figure you're on somebody else's list of whatever happened to, you know. <laughs> but, um, um, and David Strathairn was mm. in it. Yeah. Who was great. And, uh, and had, was he known more for stage at that point, or had he been doing films? He was kind of unknown. It was a long time ago, and he... Um, had a very minor part, although had a very... Strong presence. Yeah, strong presence, and he had that epileptic fit, which I always, one of my favorite filmed things is him having an epileptic fit. He did it really well. And... Um, how did you go about, uh, let's just say, at, at close range, how did you go about casting that? Because one of the things that you said when I listened to you talk before was that you don't like the audition process. Right. And uh, at this time, were you doing just the regular audition process or were you doing something else? We were doing audition uh, process for actors who didn't have film on themselves. So my theory, my theory always is if an actor has film on themselves and I look at it, and even if I don't like the character of the film, you can tell whether an actor has that 
ineffable talent to act, which is mysterious to me, and I don't know how to act. Um, and but I know if somebody can act, then what matters to me is what sounds kind of highfalutin, but what is their the palette of themselves, you know, and in order to find that out, a reading is so artificial because this person's coming in and he's prepared just on his own what he thinks the character is. There's been no rehearsal, there's been no discussion. He just comes in and reads in a very artificial situation, you know, sitting at a chair with all these people, at which I don't do anymore, but um, staring at him and, uh, <laughs> and you know, and they're before they come in to read, they're sitting in a room with 20 other people who want the same part. So, I mean, it's so high anxiety. In the room, all kinds of things go on too. The room oh. outside where everybody like Everyone's gets on the phone. Like, yeah, I've got three auditions today or whatever, tries to outdo to me, everybody. That's where the real film is. <laughs> yeah. I have to go out and make a documentary about that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, that's it's, where the drama is. Yeah. And um, The girls eating the McDonald's french fries, the skinny girls go in there and they yeah, eat the McDonald's yeah, french yeah. fries. And, um, <laughs> but, um, Sean certainly didn't read, and neither did Chris Walken, but I believe everybody else did, uh, including Sean's mother, who played his grandmother in the film, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Millie Perkins, who played Sean's mother. Um, I was kind of undecided, and one day, now I was really young, and one day I got, in pre-production, got a phone call and said, hi, this is Jack Nicholson. So I immediately said, yeah, like, right. You know, because <laughs> it was one of my friends being funny or something like that, doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation. We've definitely heard this more than once on our show, where people had this experience where someone called them, and they're like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. I was about to hang up and say, you know, Good try, um, but it turned out to be Jack Nicholson, and he had done something a long time ago with Millie Perkins, and um, there's an interesting thing about Nicholson that I got to know a little bit, and um, she asked him if he would call and put in a good word for her, and hmm. uh, he did, and I hung up and I said, well, Millie Perkins is cast, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and... Wow. Uh, so it comes from all different directions and all different influences, but I think it worked out good on that film. You know, it was the right actors and the right um, situation, and um, and it was really the beginnings of my close collaboration with at least the lead actors. Because there's not enough time for everybody, but Sean and I spent six months and. We didn't talk very specifically very much about the character, except in broad terms every once in a while. We'd say, you know, maybe you should work out and get bigger so that um, there you could have, he described as being like a gentle giant who, you know, was kind of sweet and didn't involve himself in the criminal aspects of his father. Um, and 
Um, but we talked around it an awful lot, and we decided that we didn't want to have anything to do because it's based on a true story. We didn't want to meet the real people because Sean didn't want to do an imitation of somebody, and um, Chris Walken was not interested, and neither was I. I just wanted, I thought the script was very good, and I wanted to film the script. Um, and the writer had interviewed these people, and so I figured there was some authenticity to it. But it wasn't like it was such a famous thing that I felt I had an obligation to present it because people would have a preconceived notion. Like if you did a movie about John Kennedy, well, you, you better cast somebody who kind of looks like him and kind of can act like him and stuff because there's so much footage and mm -hmm. information. But in this case, nobody knew who the people were, so we just didn't bother with that. And how did the response to that film impact your career in a practical way? Um, well, in two ways, one better than the other. It was considered very uncommercial. Uncommer it got, everybody saw it, was very, very positive about it, like in Hollywood. But when they did a test screening, the general audience was like, it's so dark. Really? Oh yeah, it's so dark and it's so, when you think about it, you know, um, father, killing um, his stepson and um, some other kids. And um, I didn't think of it as, as dark myself, um, <laughs> but um, it was, cons and they had a really lousy distribution thing. And it's something I learned about business because the people who paid for the film, Hemdale, which is no longer in existence, mm -hmm. They paid for it, and then Orion, which is no longer in existence, distributed it. And so that's always a dangerous thing, because the dis if the distributor didn't make the film, then their egos and their company's reputation is not wrapped up in the success of the film. They're just the distributor. So they do a lot lesser job mm. promoting it and distributing it. And there was all sorts of disagreements between the guy who financed it and Orion. And the guy who financed it wanted it in just a few cities and art film houses. But Orion wanted a wide release um, because Sean was so hot at the moment. And so they did something I never heard of, but a stupid, stupid thing where they released it in the Chicago market um, with a really underfunded campaign just in Chicago um, where they had film commercials and things like that and it opened in maybe a hundred theaters. And it was, I'm not making excuses for it, but it was just thrown out there. And if a film's only being released in one city, there's no national press that, you know, it's not covered by all the national magazines and everything else. It's, it's a Chicago thing and so it, didn't make any headway, but it did in the art film houses, um, which were very small, one in LA, one in New York, one in San Francisco, I think, and Dallas and a couple other places. Um, but then it just, they couldn't agree, it's all about money, 
they just couldn't agree what direction to go, and so they went in no direction. But it mm. played for a long time in these art houses. And um, within Hollywood, it was a major positive because everybody felt like uniformly the acting was great. So I got a lot of mojo from that, mm -hmm. you know, and the dynamics of getting a job is are there stars who will agree to work with you mm -hmm. and so since the performance is so good and stars are looking for what director is going to make me look the best and get me an Oscar and um, so um, I um, got some really a foundation to go on after that and um, can you tell us something about your process working with actors that um, enables these actors obviously you cast great actors and, yeah, and are able that's to that's the most important thing um, but what about the process on the set in um, mm. trying to get these actors to have, give their best performance yeah um, I try my damnedest to get to know the leads personally as much as I possibly can um, in the months leading up to the shooting. Like just going for a drink, having dinner, talking, 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 not about the film, but just about them. I try to tease out as much about them and their personality and put them in different situations, maybe plow a few drinks into them and stuff and find <laughs> out who they really are. and. Um, so that when it comes to directing, two things. One is that there's no ice to break. You know, there are some times when a director is, I've never experienced this, but are meeting or, you know, after initial meeting, have no rehearsal, no nothing. And on the first day of shooting, they don't know each other. And it's very, there's no trust involved, there's no familiarity involved, and it's awkward and tense, and you can't be very effective as a director. But if you know them, first of all, the crust of getting through knowing any new person is gone, and you have shared experiences. And so it creates a bond where you can access parts of themselves that they might not ordinarily bring up in their performance, but I know about it, so I sort of push that aspect of themselves and um, for a more complete character, which I always think is limitless, you know, the aspects of any character, of um, diversity of each individual's personality. And um, I also um, am very interested in good actors' instincts. So I have this thing I developed, because you remember there was no acting class, and I'm a directing class, so I'm very grateful about that, because mm -hmm. I very early on decided that I didn't have or didn't want a style of directing, you know, that this is the way I direct and the actors have to acclimate themselves to that, but I wanted to do the reverse. And as I got to know the actors, I would 
part of getting to know them personally would know what kind of interventions I could make in what way that would be most effective and they'd be least defensive about because when you're walking up to actors after a take they know that there's something I'm unhappy about and the natural human reaction is a bit big defensive and say yeah what you know what <laughs> will say and um, you got to put it in terms of not that sucked I'm not that kind of actor that director and um, I always accentuate the positive and within a particular take they'll do something which is a taste of what I want them more to do and I said remember when you did this I think there should be a lot more of that aspect of the scene and so I'm taking their own original ideas and trying to push them in that direction and massage them into that direction and I find it very effective because I'm not bringing in something new that is coming seemingly just from me I want you to act this way but I'm appealing to them and I want to see more of you doing this kind of thing which is part of you it was your idea you you did it in the last take and um, so I'm always constantly trying to build on what's positive about what the actor did that's great yeah. because uh, honestly I don't understand directors that don't use an yeah. approach like that it just shuts people down it really does and there are many, many different kind of directors and some make really good films with good performances I mean Woody Allen is famous for saying nothing you know except do it again and um, he has gotten some of the best performances so it's just but of course he's been revered for so long that actors just sort of surrender themselves to what he wants to do and they'll keep on doing it until he's happy uh, which is true of m most actors if they feel like the director is really paying attention to them they will do it and I mean one of the most uh, kind of moving things actually is when you say cut immediately every actor turns and looks at you you know and waiting for a reaction on your face you know and I tend to be very effusive when it's good I say, that was fucking great and if I say yeah that was good they know the difference <laughs> so it might help too I mean I'm sure it helps that they they get to know you yes so that they know they what know my own personality yeah. too and yeah. so they're mm. used to that and, and they feel safe because mm. it is such a like you know the cliche it's really unro is unrobing your entire internal vulnerabilities yes. and saying here you know be but but you're hoping they're not going to just crush you, you yeah know? yeah so, and, and one of the important things to me is that to keep that relationship because I'm asking them to give of themselves which is the most difficult thing to do to be honest about particularly if they're playing a character who's got unattractive traits and stuff and to bring that out and to make them feel safe and to take risks and to know that I'm really paying attention and I'm really and they've listened to me and my point of view about the characters and stuff and so they feel comfortable okay I'll take this risk and um, I always 
before we shoot something, um, I always ask everyone to leave, all the crew people who are doing things, and the actors are in hair and makeup, and uh, I kick everybody out except for the AD and the script supervisor and just have the actors come, and they're always halfway through makeup and everything, and they have things on their shirts and everything. And I just sit there and I say, okay, action. And um, don't say a word to them about where to go and they're maybe on the set for the first time. So they just come in and <laughs> it's funny because they're usually just wandering around and bumping into the furniture and stuff <laughs> and, uh, and kind of making things up and saying no, no, no and then doing this. And I'm just watching and observing and if I see something that's really good, I'll intervene and I'll say, oh yeah, that was really great when you did that. And so, and then with each actor, I try to do the same thing. And then I intervene more and more to set up the scene visually in the way that I see it and how they move. But I have found um, exclusively that once you give the actors a chance to blow out what they've been obsessing about and um, and the director's paying attention and using some of their ideas, then they're totally open to being directed after that because um, they feel as if you're in the same wavelength. And so, you know, sometimes you're always asking actors to do something false in their movements and everything because of the demands of this two-dimensional at the moment, <laughs> soon to be three. And, um, you know, to accommodate the camera. And um, experienced actors, of course, see the camera as their friend, but very young actors see the camera as interfering with what they're doing, you know. And Aidan Quinn was like that. He would never hit his marks. He thought the idea of having to be in focus and having to accommodate <laughs> was just, you know, <laughs> impeding his work. <laughs> and um, Do you ever have actors that are like, I don't, uh, tell me what to do. I just want to. You know, oh tell yeah, me what yeah, to do. yeah, yeah. That happens all the time, um, where an actor just says, "You know, I'm, I'm lost. Tell me exactly what to do." And um, you always got to be ready to, to have. And since you've been working on it, and um, particularly, I found when I did the adaptation of After Dark, My Sweet, I was very ready because I had imagine the movie very specifically in my head as I was writing because I knew I'd be putting it on film and so I had the whole thing sort of memorized in my head and um, I heard and I never read the script from the time we start shooting to the time we're finished. Oh. I look at the sides um, of that day's work, the two and a half pages, um, and I go by that. And of course I have the whole movie playing in my head, but it is the movie that's playing in my head that was inspired by the script. It's not following the script exactly, but it's my interpretation of the script. So, and that's a very important thing because one of the biggest challenges for a director is that you're shooting totally out of sequence and tone is one of the hardest things to maintain because 
if you're shooting a scene after somebody got raped, but you didn't shoot the rape scene yet, well, you've got to get them into a place where it's like they have been raped already. And um, so that's a big job of the director to keep the linearity in mind. And it's not the, I feel it's not the actor's responsibility to do that. It's their responsibility to be in that moment. And for me to give them a framework of what that moment is and remind them, okay, remember you were raped a couple of days ago and then this happened and that happened. And uh, so they can be focused in, in space. But I never ever will stand there and say cut. And if there's more than one actor, bark out directions. I'm always just talking to that actor quietly and nobody else hears it because I want it to be as real as possible. So if I'm talking to him about what I think is missing emotionally or something like that, I don't want you to hear it because then you know something a little bit more than your character might know. And I don't want you to know that because when he does it, I want you to respond naturally to, you know, and it's very funny sometimes when I ask an actor to do something 180 from what he's been doing, the other actor is like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if they're a good actor, they go with it and they're simulated and they're freed and uh, it works out that way. But also the last thing I'll say about that is that I feel as if I don't have a directorial language in talking to actors. I try my best to learn their language. And it's really like you're talking French or German or English to different people. And so like Glengarry was the extreme example where all those actors had different disciplines, you know, and Al was the ultimate um, sense memory, Strasbourg, hmm. the method. And um, where you never identify the emotion, you identify the facts around it and then have the unconscious come out and when you do the take. With Jack Lemmon was the opposite of that and he would say, what do you want me to do? You know, you want me to stand up here on this line? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? Do you want me to cry? Do you want me to laugh? <laughs> you know, and I always remember um, I'd be talking quietly to him, but Al was nearby and he heard him talking and he went like this and walked Cover away really ears. fast because that was like anathema to him that you would ever approach acting that way. But I think they both did great performances yeah. Yeah. and it's yeah. just a different language. And um, Do you have a, a favorite type of um, acting method that you see as the most uh, um, effective one in terms of film work? Um, yes, I, well, yes and no. I, I mean, I think in a practical sense, I've experienced people who, because in the beginning you have your own prejudices about acting and, and I really came from the school of Strasbourg and the method and, um, but I've had experiences where people, like with Jack Lemmon, were totally 180 from that and did great performances. Um, but it's most engaging for me when I'm interacting in a more emotional way and talking about that and then leaving the 
actual behavior of the actor, how he interprets that to the actor to see what comes out. And um, so... Do you think it helped studying psychology for this? Yes, very much so. Mm. Because people, although everyone's different, there are certain things that work. Affirmation makes people feel good. Criticism makes them feel bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> learn that. Maybe and, the studio um, executives should learn that too. Yeah, yeah. I, well, 100%, you know, I hardly anybody talks about it, but the director has his own emotional journey that he goes on for all this time because he's dealing with all these different personalities and who wants something. Everybody wants something from you. The cameraman wants to know what you want. The crew wants to know what you want. The actors want to know what you want. And you've got to be able to talk in their terms um, in order to get everybody in the same page. And, um, but I must say I love doing that. But I very much try to keep an island of my, just myself and the actors separate from the hundred crew people who were standing a couple of feet away staring at them, you know, and, but I have this like a zone of privacy where I make it very clear that people just don't walk up and go start fiddling with the actors at a time and I think they shouldn't be. And so like the makeup person always has to say, can I, oh, and good. I always say yes or no because I'm very sensitive to reading the actor's state of mind and knowing when it's time to turn the camera on fast, you know, and sometimes you get into conflict with the cinematographer or something, he says, no, I want to tweak. So I say, I don't care as long as it's in focus and then you can see their faces, I want to shoot now because I can see in the actor he's ready to, or she's ready to do something. And um, I, I just want to mention that John Frank, I worked with John Frankenheimer and he was uh, the only director I've worked with that had that view of things where he would really protect the space around the actor. Yeah. If, if, if there was a scene coming up that was intense, he would literally tell the crew and he was kind of scary N you better not you know go near her or touch her yes. or fiddle yeah. with her hair or whatever and and they would but generally nobody does it it's so distracting it is. that's why when you hear that christian bale rant which is yes. horrible yes i kind of felt for him totally i'm like dude the whole terminator franchise is riding on this guy's shoulder and you're worried about a light when yeah. he's like you know, obviously was a little nutty, but still, like, yeah. they don't get that, really. Yeah. Most most of them don't. Yeah, and I don't blame them for it, I, um, because they're way back, and they don't hear me whispering to the actors. They don't know what's going on. They can barely hear the actors because they don't have headphones or anything. So they're quite distant from the process. And um, I remember doing Fear, in Canada and um, at the, um, call it a hump party when you're halfway through and the editor puts together a reel of just like a long form commercial or trailer um, of what we shot so far. And um, we had a great editor in that movie and he did a great reel and um, 
when the movie was over and everybody's getting drunk and stoned and everything, and I was hanging out uncharacteristically in the grip truck, you know, and all the grips were getting drunk and stoned and everything. And um, uh, they started telling me that they thought when they first started that I was out of my mind because I tend to get very <laughs> vocal and very excited when something goes well and not so happy when somebody's walkie-talkie goes off in mm. the middle of a scene. And um, so they thought I didn't know what I was doing. And I once said, apparently, I don't remember saying this, but I don't make up a shot list in the beginning of the day because I don't know what's going to happen. So I make up a general order of things so that we're going to shoot in this direction first and before we turn around because you can't go back and forth. I mean, that would be crazy. But um, I never know exactly what shot to do next, whether we're going to do a close-up of something that I never thought of or whether we're going to do the master from a different angle. It drives the AD nuts, but um, too bad. And the reason I do that is because I may watch the master scene and see people do things and all of a sudden notice that this one actress is doing something that is really drawing my attention and it was never in the script, it was never in rehearsal, but I feel like I want to get a close-up of that. And um, even though she's got no lines at the moment and stuff like that, but how she's responding to the thing. So I want to be free to say the next shot we're doing is a close-up of her and, um, and then go from there. And the more movies you make, the more familiar you get with the technical aspects of what it means to change your mind all the time. And so it's balanced against the practicalities of the technical aspects. So, but if you're doing a wide scene, they want to do a close-up of somebody, it's not a big deal. You just move the lights a little bit and you can do it. And the big thing is you don't turn around and in the middle of it. What about dailies? Do you let your actors watch dailies or not? I prefer that they don't just as a... Because I've seen, there's always a danger that the actor is going to be freaked out um, because they don't have the whole movie in their head. It's not their responsibility to, to keep that. And they, so they're seeing things way out of sequence and they may think it's over the top or this or that or, and they're looking at it. And of course, almost all of us have an aversion to seeing ourselves. I mean, I see a picture of myself and I... Yeah, anytime you take a picture of somebody, they always look at it and go, oh, I look Get horrible. Get rid of it. Yeah, I look yeah. horrible. You look great. I, I look mean, like, I, I won't listen to or watch any interviews of myself because I think my voice is just sounds so friggin' weird and I look so friggin' weird. <laughs> I can't take it. And so I ignore it. And... Um, so, but if an actor really insists that they need to, they're usually actors who learn something from it. And like Sean Penn is extremely disciplined 
and he knows what he's going to do when he comes on the set and he will adapt to if there's somebody else does something different he's already adept at it going with it but he never looks at dailies because he says he knows what he did and um i don't like looking at dailies uh anymore the last couple of films because the monitors now are so sophisticated that you can see everything and so you've seen it already done you've seen it on the monitor you can play back takes if you want to check something out so i know it all so all i want to know the next day is the lab report you get very early in the morning is everything okay is the film in focus is it scratched and if the lab report is okay then fine move on i don't need to sit there for an hour at the end of the day when you want to just sleep and watch what i saw the day before you know so you're looking at the monitor or are you looking at the back and forth okay i go back and forth because the camera moves to me are very important um how they're timed and when they come in at what moment and stuff like that oh, so yeah. you were saying something uh, sorry to interrupt but you were saying something about how the people on your set um really make a big difference the, like the guy who moves the dolly makes yeah. a huge difference in, in it's a huge difference um because that dolly move has to be in sync with the emotional movement of the character who's maybe just sitting there but he and he's got to get there at the exact right moment the climax so he has to know exactly when to move and you can tell him on this line they usually hold the script and they're waiting and um they know when to start it but had to start it and exactly what that moment is and how fast to start it whether you creep really slow and then accelerate or you go faster from the beginning is all something that you can tell somebody but unless they feel it in themselves unless they're really listening to the actor and paying attention and you usually give the dolly grip earphones so that they can be very clued in on what the actor's doing then it's up to them to interpret how the camera should move and how fast and when it should come to a stop and um i noticed you like long lenses a lot yeah it makes it, it it's interesting cuz there is like a different emotional response you have to a long lens yeah cuz it's almost like you feel like you're in their head yeah somehow yeah yeah that's to me something i have to fight sometimes with myself because i would shoot the whole movie in big close ups and you got to back off every once in a while but i mean to me a a, a perfectly composed close up and you know there's a big difference you know between a 35 mm lens and a 40 mm lens and with each shot you've got to decide and you've got to look through the camera and decide no 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 and you don't know why it's not intellectual but it doesn't feel right you know you're too close you're too far away and um 
but luckily, uh, zoom lenses, which used to be kind of really verboten, mm -hmm. um, have become so sophisticated and the glass and the lenses have become so good that um, myself and this cameraman I work with the most have really embraced the zoom as something where you can get the exact thing without being tied to the limits of the um, fixed lenses. So I'd like to, if it's all right with you, shift gears a little bit and discuss, because you are obviously very well entrenched in what we would call the, the, the establishment of this business. I mean, you really are a, a player in the studio game uh -huh. and so forth. Can you tell us what's going on in the business in terms of what has it changed from, what is it changing into, where does the filmmaker fit in, the artist, how, how, how does this work? It's changed dramatically since I started. Um, and the easiest way to describe it is that they had a pie chart of the genres of movies that studios make each year. And I forget the exact thing, but like um, action adventure, which are the tent poles that they spend a couple hundred million on. And then there are um, uh, animation, which has grown bigger and bigger from starting with the Pixar revolution. And then there are comedies, and um, then, am I leaving something out? Horror. Oh, this horror, yeah, good point. And um, the smallest part of the pie was drama. Um, at this particular moment, if you went in to pitch a straight drama, like The Godfather, they would throw you out and say, no way. Um, and it's understandable, and I never can get into, we get a bunch of film people together and they're whining about how stupid studios are. And I said, they're not stupid. They're corporations. It's capitalism. And if you can make Spider-Man and then get another billion dollars in merchandise around the world, well, Sony is in business to make money. And um, the fact that they occasionally take risks and do something which is not tied into something like that. That to me is the surprising and optimistic thing about Hollywood. And I think of something like um, Blindside, which was very good for Hollywood that Blindside made so much money um, because it was the uh, total opposite of what the majority of movies are. It was a, a drama, a feel-good drama, um, but nonetheless, it was a straight drama, and um, uh, it made closer to $300 million domestically. And so, same thing with a couple of years ago, remember, um, Diane Keaton and... Mm -hmm. She's uh, got to have it, right? Uh, or... Something's got to give. Oh, yeah. maybe it was yeah. that. It's something, it. something got yeah. to give, yeah. yeah. With oh, yeah. Diane and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Jack Nicholson, 
which I can't believe anybody under 30, let's say, went near the film, but it flew, you know, worldwide $300 million. So the one um, thing I think the studios are missing out on is that they tend to look at the country or the world as in a kind of singular way. So whatever the last big global hit was, they figure, and they're mostly correct, that that's what the worldwide audience wants to see. And worldwide is very important because um, at least half the revenue from movies these days come from outside the U.S. Like Avatar has only made, only made, $800 million um, in the U.S., <laughs> mm -hmm. but its total take is $2.8 billion, um, and most of it was from outside the U.S. And so, um, you know, what do you say about that? I didn't think I had much of a story. I was blown away for the first 20, 30 minutes by the technical expertise, but after that it was like, okay, save the rainforest. We got that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, then along comes the blind side or something's got to give. And um, they realize that there's an, another audience out there. Um, they seem to have to keep relearning that lesson every yes. two years. I mean, it's sex in the city. There's no female audience. Well, yeah, there's I guess no female there audience, is. and there's no. I mean, the tween audience was only invented in the Twilight uh, Zone in um, in the beginning of this century, whatever it is, twenty first century. Um, <laughs> and you know, the amount of money that the Twilight movies are making is out of control, and even the Miley Cyrus movies make money and all that stuff. So. Um, there is room for a mix, and they just focus on 12 to 24-year-olds and... Males. Male, and um, that's what drives opening weekends, and um, it seems to be the most reliable thing, even for something I haven't seen it, but it's meant to be pretty junky. Uh, Clash of the Titans, and um, but look at the numbers it's racking up around the world. Um, and around the world, I meant to mention, is one of the unfortunate banes of creative expression because the more real you get, the more you're including real people who are influenced by the culture and by their identity and the uh, norms of the society that the movie is, is built around. And um, so if you make comic book characters, well, they're understandable around the world. If you want to make something uh, which is... As brown people or black people. Yeah, and um, the psychology 
of people in different cultures is doesn't translate necessarily mm -hmm. to even you know Western things and the best examples are uh, a comedies which traditionally do not do as well uh, overseas as they do domestically which makes sense people have different senses of humor in different countries and um, you know, see many foreign films coming here that are comedies or anything for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing with uh, black films, understandably don't sell as well overseas. And um, it was a third thing, comedies and... Uh, horror? Uh, no, horror sells. Uh, action sells, horror Act sells. Yeah, um, all the other things sells, which is why drama is the smallest thing, because yeah. it's mm -hmm. a really worldwide audience. And uh, I read this fascinating thing where the... Because American film from the beginning has always been worldwide, but worldwide meant America and Europe. And it still is mainly America and Europe, although China, Russia, and um, India and India are building audiences. And I mean, the limits in China or in India are unfathomable. There's such big markets, and um, but they weren't in the equation a while ago. And the people running the studios were all Western European immigrants. And um, so they were coming to America with a European sensibility, which became one of the great things about America is the melting pot and the acceptance of immigrants is American. And, um, but they were, looking at America from a European perspective and even if they were first generation, you know, when they grew up from their parents and then they were selling that back to Europe, which they could understand because, mm -hmm. you know, the Western European culture and the American culture because of immigrants are very closely aligned. Um, but now that the market's expanded into other cultures that are quite different than the American and the European, um, that's just more money. And so the way to appeal to the largest number of people is to dumb it down to its simplest, most basic human things, which is violence and action. And um, that's why you get most of those things. So I would just want to ask you, uh, because the premise, the premise that all this started from is that Sony is not in the business of philanthropy. They're, they're a corporation. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with capitalism. And I would just, I would like to discuss with you whether that in fact is or needs to remain the foundation of, of this entire industry because to a great degree, we are distinct 
from a, um, another type of manufacturer. Our product is distinct. It's mm. much more complex. Yes. It's, a, it's a product that involves ideas. It's yeah. a product that moves culture forward or backward or sideways. Yeah. It's an extremely um, both vital and dangerous tool that we have. And to just sort of place it in the realm of business, I believe, is somewhat obscene at this point in time with the, the way that things are. Yeah. And I would sort of suggest that a lot of these people are very bright people. They're very well-meaning people. They're not necessarily, uh, you know, greedy, horrible people. But it's this whole corporation as person thing that's bleeding into this. And I think we, I would, I would, like to raise the question is is it possible to start influencing the industry to take a more um a more humanist approach to mm -hmm. our what what it is that we're feeding i mean really are we gonna raise a, a world on junk food because yeah. that is ultimately what tent poles are yeah can we do anything about this <clears throat> um people can write scripts that are so compelling and so emotionally engaging that they're just too great a temptation to not make. And that to me is the biggest um, is the most powerful tool that can change things. And unfortunately because of the influence of the popcorn movies, which are traditionally not the vision of a single writer, they're a product that you bring in one writer to do, the, to do this, one writer to do the dialogue, one writer to do, and it goes through many, many writers, and so there's no unified vision. It's just, it's a product. It's like you go to a restaurant that has really good food by a chef, a single chef is setting the menu and um, his personality and his vision about food is, is consistent across the menu. And um, that's what I think um, a director does with the help of a great script not the help, the genesis of a great script. And um, if that was done, if there were more scripts like that, there would be more movies like that. But the problem is, writers are in a bind because they know that those you kind of scripts sell. are not going to sell. And if they write a comic book, then it's going to sell. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle that just goes round and round. And maybe you've heard of the, um, I forget what they call the list, but every year they publish a yeah. list of the... The best films that will never get made. The best scripts yeah. that everybody agrees are the best scripts written that year, but they don't get made because they feel like the audience. And I think that that's a mistake because they don't know that the audience is not going to respond to that. And... I believe that, I mean, it's a big country. It's 300 million p 
people minimum these days, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just such a wide audience that, um, you know, that's not being tapped into. And you see with films that appeal to women and uh, films that appeal to older people, the audience is there. They just don't feel as if there's anything to go see until something's presented to them and then they'll come out in droves and they have more money than kids and they'll pay. Yeah, we had that experience with Julia and Julie. Julie, Julie, Julia. Um, Just this entire theater that was in my hometown that we went to was is normally there it's not packed at all in the middle of the day we went to go see that and it was just packed yeah. with people older people yeah 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 and that's a good example and the same thing with it's complicated it was a, as big a hit as other things but it made a good chunk of money yeah and that was definitely older people so isn't it possible i mean i don't know this but but obviously corporations pay taxes right i mean even big studios pay taxes. Why can't there be a program devised where you take those scripts that were so great that no one wants to make and you set up a foundation where the tax money goes to that foundation and that foundation makes those scripts? Are you a socialist? What is this, like, like the Works Progress Administration? Well, I mean, what's the difference? Are you a communist? <laughs> I just want to make some like good movies. Yeah. Like the movies that you talked about yeah. when we started this interview. Mm. You, I want to see Dog Day Afternoon, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. And they do do that in other countries. Yes. Sure. To a certain extent. And the problem and the great thing, if you are American is that um, I read this great thing because I'm in love with language around the world and particularly the only language I really know. I know some French, but um, I know English a bit better. And I am (laughs) obsessed by the evolution of language. Um, And I walk up this Runyon Canyon every day and I overhear conversations and stuff and I saw a young father and his little girl, who's about five years old, and the father said, yelled to the girl, says, yo dude, slow down, I I catch up to you. And he just said, yo dude, to his five-year-old daughter. And I thought (laughs) it sounded perfectly sweet. And the daughter certainly understood it and everything else. And I just love the idea how words come into the culture and dude has become like man in the 60s. Yeah, but even more legitimate. But people still say man, mm-hmm. you know. And um, uh, and I remember the first time I really paid attention to it was right after Columbine. Uh, Clinton went to a nearby school and conducted a round table of students and um, for them just to vent and everything. and. He asked a question and he said, um, and this was in the 90s, and he said, um, you know, we asked one girl, suppose you're walking down the hallway and somebody comes out and disses you and then you, you know, what's your reaction going to be to that? Just what or if it ducks back or, and when he said disses you, it was <laughs> a shock. You know, the president using the word dis when it was still a relatively new word. Uh-huh. And I thought, where did he hear that word? And where, how does he know? I mean, with Clinton, you 
reads everything, knows everything, so I, it, at least surprising from him. But um, still, I love the evolution of language and um, very much against these purists who think that there's rules of grammar and the language needs to be preserved. I think an evolving language is much more fascinating. Uh, but anyway, English um, <clears throat> is consistently and acceleratingly the global, global language. language. And even France is making its biggest uh, movie that they've ever made, the most expensive movie they ever made, and they're filming it in English, which for, really? for the French is you know, a, a, real, uh, <laughs> a real leap. But there's no two ways around it, so I'm happy to be an American director because it gives you the most opportunities. Um, and, um, you know, in many countries I've talked to people that, like I have a, a German director friend um, who directed Run, Lola, Run, if oh, you ever love, saw that. With I love that movie. movie, yeah. He's a great guy and he speaks, speaks English and, um, but stays in Germany uh, and uh, said that more and more people in Germany mix English with German in one sentence, you know, and it's understood. And um, I'm always fascinated by like this nuclear summit going on and you see the president and some foreign leader and there seemed to be an animated conversation and you think Obama's not speaking Kazakhstan or something, <laughs> you know, the Kazakhstani guy speaking English. Mm -hmm. and. Um, so um, my point about that is that you know America really is has I agree with you has a responsibility to keep films as an art form and not let them degenerate into McDonald's and um, the solution to that though is. A difficult one. I'm, I'm still uh, very optimistic because um, everybody that I've ever met, studio executives and producers, want to make hits, but more than that, they want an Oscar. They want critical respect, mm -hmm. which I think is true in almost all fields. You know, critical affirmation from your peers is the ultimate turn on. And so there is a desire to make better films. Um, and it's just that the studios now are so kind of homogenized and have, um, you know, laid the golden egg for the time being. And even 3D is kind of revolutionary from a revenue side of things, you know, where they can charge a lot more for a 3D movie and people are paying. And, um, but I embrace 3D. I mean, if I did Glengarry over again, I would, and if I could shoot it in original 3D instead of the post, because, you know, they do it both ways mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the original is much superior. I would do it in 3D because, you know, there are, 
that one big office and um, when all the guys were in the office together, there was depth and you'd want to see the people and see the movements around. And so I think 3D is the future and um, long term, this going to be without glasses or anything. And of course, the Masters was shot in 3D um, and 3D televisions are coming out this mm -hmm. summer. Yeah, so. I saw that on the TV. The um, We had a friend, Thomas Jane, who just directed his uh, short film. I mean, a a, film. I mean, a feature film, sorry, called Dark Country, and we saw a screening of it, and it was in 3D, and it wasn't one of these films where they were, you know, throwing stuff at you throughout the film. It, he, he, there was a, a very sexual scene that was in it that was done in 3D, and it was, it was extremely effective and yeah. intense. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was hot. Because you could see the skin quality really well, the hair. You yeah. felt like you were about to, like, like you were a little too close, like you were right between them. Yeah, it was yeah, very interesting. Yeah. yeah, it helped. It really brought you into the movie in a different Wait, what, kind of way. What was his name again? Uh, Thomas Jane. Thomas the movie's Jane, yeah. called Dark Country. It's actually an excellent little little movie that he made. Mm -hmm. All on the red camera on the in red, 3D. Yeah. And he shot it with through, you know, in, as 3D to begin with. That's great. No, I would... Um, I'd shoot everything in 3D, and um, I've had fights with my older brother, who I just accused of becoming our parents, and, um, <laughs> because he said, ah, why do you have to see things in 3D? I said, well, when you walk around all day long, what do you see things in? <laughs> you know, 3D. It's, it's the natural way to, to see things. So what's the reason to not go to 3D and and it's the same thing as there was silence and then there were talkies and uh, they were considered vulgar talk in a movie now you see a silent film and you think what you know <laughs> it's yeah. subtitles and ridiculous and then of course there was color and um so there's always resistance but um now What's driving 3D is, of course, not the things you're talking about, about how a normal drama can be enhanced, mm -hmm. but because they can charge higher ticket prices, which will level out. Um, and um, the writings on the wall, that Blu-ray and everything will become 3D, and uh, television will. Um, and uh, life will be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, I think we're going to end this... Uh, discussion. Uh, we always end with this thing called uh, Film Bites, where we just have like any one little piece of uh, information you can give out to the audience that you think might help them uh, when they make their first film. Like an example is we always say uh, young filmmakers generally don't get stills and then later without stills it's very very difficult in terms of distribution so that's just a little thing that people you might don't not get know. stills. Still, still shots. You know they don't get a still photographer on their set. And then, it, then later on, people when they say need them for we need or posters for or the, the press or for they don't have them. Mm -hmm. So that's just that's an example bizarre. of a film bite. <laughs> a lot wrong. of filmmakers nowadays don't go to film schools, yeah. So they wouldn't necessarily get all the. Or yeah. they shoot on digital, and they're like, "Oh, I'll just pull the the stills from the yeah, film, and that doesn't work." Yeah, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, that's oh. an interesting comment. I guess I've been lucky. I've always had a still photographer who is mainly I look upon as a pest um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm talking to the actor and in between takes and it's 
you know, intense, and then all of a sudden there's a guy there. <laughs> They're great um, pictures to have later on. Yes, sure. yes. And I, in, do I want to say this? Um, do I, I, interestingly enough, so hate pictures of myself that it's not common for a director, but in my contract I have what actors have, which means Photo the ability to kill um, photos that you don't want. Wow. And um, I kill all the photos that I don't want. Because <laughs> why? Because I don't want an ugly picture of myself yeah. in you know, some newspaper or something. Completely understandable, especially these days with the way pictures go around all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And Who knew? Who knew? We didn't know that our photos would be so easily exchangeable now yeah. and posted. <laughs> it's just ubiquitous. And yeah. I mean... That's why I'd hate to be really famous with paparazzi following you because they're inevitably going to find oh. you in an ugly thing falling down <laughs> oh, and everything yeah. else and then it's, ah! <laughs> and, um, sure. um, but the uh, nugget, I, the most important nugget mm-hmm. is to, when in doubt, fake it and um, never let them see you sweat, never let them see you confused or unsure of yourself. Um, You have to project from your first film on a mastery of everything you're doing. And of course, nobody has that. So when you're really at your low point, take a break and (laughs) go to your trailer if you have one and figure out on your own what you're going to do and come back with a real firm plan. Because as soon as it's a vicious thing and you're the leader and as soon as the crew and the cast sense blood, you know, that you don't know what you're doing then the whole trust level just can collapse. So, um, I've always made it a habit of, even though I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, I present myself that I do. And one of the most um, um, it's tense, but it's also invigorating is when the scene is not going well, and um you really can't put your finger on what's the matter. And I've learned that 99% of the time it's because there's something wrong with the script. There's something wrong with the scene because scenes that are written well, film well, you know exactly where to put the camera, you know exactly what to say to the actors. And um, which is why Glengarry was the easiest film we ever made because the script was so tight and so correct um, that everything just worked. And, um, but I know that when it's not going well and I get, I say cut and I get up and I'm going to talk to the actor, as I'm walking, my mind is just racing like crazy <laughs> because I'm walking over as if I know what I'm going to say and I don't have a clue and I got to figure it out before I get there. And, um, that's a real challenge, but, um, you know, That's great that you said that, though. Yeah. That's very helpful. Boy, was that good. Yeah, I'm, yeah. nobody's ever said that. And that is, you know, I mean, 
You're absolutely right. We, you are the authority figure. You're right. the dad. You know, you're the guy. Uh, you're the one that protects us from the bad producers, and yeah, you're the one yeah, that knows. Yeah. You've got the whole movie in your head, and so you do have to project that. Yeah, you do. And I think of it as like the president. The president can never appear unsure of himself or be indecisive, or at least in public. Like I don't know, or <laughs> yeah. show any sign of. I mean, if That's, fear ever came over a, a uh, president's <laughs> face, it would be disastrous. Which is why I think Obama is so great because I don't think he knows fear. He just knows cool. Mm-hmm. Although, look at the great decider. He was so um, clearly, yes, you know, sub. I mean, he didn't know how much he didn't know. So yes. it was fabulous. He yes, just could decide. Yes. He was just so <laughs> sure of himself. And um, it, it, it is, however much I disagreed with his policies, I, I admired his leadership and his confidence. And um, um, I, in retrospect, um, grow more because you move away from the policies which have been pulled back to a large extent. Um, and it was actually George W. who to me had the most deer in the headlights moments where you really got a queasy feeling in your stomach that he really didn't know. He wasn't on <laughs> solid ground and he was treading water. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course I didn't like a lot of the things that he was doing. And uh, it's a different subject, but I still think there needs to be a major investigation of yeah. the Iraq war because it was done on false pretenses, which they, mm-hmm. they buried. Huge mm-hmm. the That's WMDs, a huge deal. WMDs, there were yeah. none. So yeah. it was a false war. And my God, that's dangerous. More dangerous than a bad movie. Yep. <laughs> that being said, thank you, James, for being okay. on our show. We really appreciate thank it. You. Yep. It was extremely informative. Good. And to all you listeners out there, we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.